Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. If you listen to our recent episode of Giving Ventures with Tracy Sharp, the president of State Policy Network, you heard Tracy mention how much of a focus state think tanks have placed on growing their ability to tell compelling and powerful stories. Stories are amazing. A well-crafted story can impart more wisdom than any number of academic papers and can help us recall that wisdom later. Stories move public opinion and can change hearts and minds. It's easy to fall into the trap of telling stories to folks who already agree with us, though, and what's the fun in that? I want to share with you today four groups that understand this need to package the story of free markets and free people in a way that can be heard by those who aren't steeped in the language of classical economics. Whether you are a donor looking to spread the ideas of freedom or a nonprofit leader looking to expand your audience, you'll walk away with a slew of ideas after you listen to my guests today. They represent four groups, Iron Light Labs, Kite and Key Media, Free to Choose Network, and the Story Incubator. However, the principles they'll share go far beyond their own work. Well, let me show you. Let's jump in. One of the leading consultant partners helping liberty-minded organizations tell their story better is Ironlight and its nonprofit partner, Ironlight Labs. The Ironlight team is helping on everything from advertising to filmmaking, and the groups that Ironlight works with are all the better for it. Joe Jensen is the president of Ironlight Labs and is here to help us understand the many things that Ironlight is doing. Uh, so, Joe, I know you've worked in the storytelling space for a long time with a couple different entities. Broad picture question here. What do you think free market organizations are still getting wrong about how they communicate their ideas? Yeah, I found that the biggest challenge is that free market advocates are often tone deaf on the implications of having the right message, but the wrong messenger. So our policy is sound, our message is sound, but we're not being intentional about who's delivering that message. And so one thing that we've tried to do at Iron Light Labs is really take those right ideas, that amazing research, and partner it with the most effective messengers. And that's important and been a hindrance to our storytelling effectiveness because statistics don't spark movements. Stories do. And so, you know, we're taking like a neuroscience approach to messaging to make sure that those ideas stick with the intended audience and humanizing this abstract policy topics. That's what good storytelling really is. And then we take it a step further by making sure we're kind of a matchmaker for who the best messenger is to deliver that message. So we came to this because research has shown that if you identify with the person and relate to them who's talking to you, you're going to process that information as if it's within your own thoughts. Whereas if that person repels you or is unrelatable, before they even tell you what the message, what the policy prescription is, you're already processing that in a different part of your brain. 
And so this is a really powerful tool that we can unleash by being intentional about finding relatable messengers for the audience we're trying to educate. And at Ironlight Labs, we've taken that a step further by building out a bullpen of non-traditional messengers to help us deliver those messages to key audiences. Hmm. That's interesting that so much comes down to who is saying, not necessarily what is being said. Um, so speaking of who, help, help us understand Ironlight, the for-profit marketing firm, as compared to the Ironlight Labs that was born out of it, and it's on the C3 nonprofit side. Talk to us about that evolution and kind of what each one does. Yeah, so the team at Ironlight, the creative agency, successfully disrupted the way think tanks market and communicate their ideas. So that has resulted in more effective policy and impactful outcomes. And so Ironlight Labs, our nonprofit, is basically an R&D research and development team for social change. So we call it labs because we experiment, we innovate, we test to discover the best ways to deliver messaging that's gonna connect with the audience, but just ultimately drive change. So with Ironlight Labs, we train individuals, organizations, and effective marketing strategies. I like to call it, we're sharing Ironlight's secret sauce with nonprofit uh, freedom advancing organizations. And then we're taking powerful stories and elevating them uh, so that way, we just have a whole bullpen of trained practitioners that we're calling experts in residence. So we have someone who was um, a White House correspondent for Fox News. We have someone who was number two on the Stacey Abrams campaign. And we have another expert in residence who was formerly incarcerated. So you take a group of folks who probably normally are not in the same room together, but can all join together and be effective messengers you know, to help alleviate barriers to poverty or barriers for reentry. So we're taking a very unique approach in, we wanna be very transparent with what has worked and what hasn't worked. So for example, Ironlight Labs has a creative incubator on humor, which is pretty neat. And so we've been experimenting with TikTok for the past few years. And this year our TikTok channel has 2 million views. And so now we're able to take those learnings and share it with other nonprofits who are probably interested in reaching an audience more organically. So if it makes sense for them, we've already, that's that R&D and research, and we can share best practices before they get on those platforms. Yeah, let's dive a little deeper into, into how you do that and exactly how you're helping. I mean, you're, you're doing all this work. Um, you're putting it out there. What does that look like? Does that, is that a one-on-one -on -one with the nonprofits that you're helping? Is it broader based than that? What does that look like? Yeah, we train in three ways. Our first, and I know uh, you've been to, is our summit that we host uh, every year in Nashville. And this year it'll be in November, where we get folks together and really share the lessons learned, get them in the same room to have that aha inspirational moments. Another way for wider distribution is we have lab reports on our website. So uh, sometimes you just need to write down how you did it and what was effective and what was not to really scale those lessons learned. And then lastly, as you mentioned, it's partnering one-on-one. -on -one. So I've been to a lot of trainings where they talk at you, you think you get it, you go back home, you try and apply and you're lost. So we really like to partner alongside folks so that we're learning together and uh, we have found much better results that way than just talking to them one time. Gotcha. And are nonprofits paying for those services? Are those free or is it the, the for-profit they pay for, but not some of the learnings from the nonprofit? 
Exactly. Uh, so right now at Iron Light Labs, our trainings are free. Um, we are starting to charge for them just to show the value of that, to have more skin in the game and make sure we're getting the right folks. But really the goal of Iron Light Labs is to lower that barrier to entry for knowledge. Not every, and actually probably most, free market nonprofits don't need a full service agency like Iron Light, but they can take advantage of those lessons learned at Iron Light Labs. And that way, um, you know, whether they read a lab report or come to our summit, they're at least making forward progress towards their goals. And that helps advance both Iron Light and Labs' mission overall. Okay, got it. That makes sense. All right, so one of the things that I know Iron Light is engaged in is helping some of these organizations craft films, short films, medium-length films, maybe full-length films. Um, and so one of the things that those films then go on to do is hit the film festival circuit. And I will admit uh, very candidly that I'm pretty skeptical about putting things out into the festival circuit, especially for you know, a think tank that goes in there where it's probably a hostile audience in the first place. So convince me that that's a good strategy and a good use of donor dollars to actually be creating these films and, and putting them out there. I appreciate your skepticism, Peter, because it's not for everyone. Um, but there are certain film festivals that might make sense for your strategy. So for example, the Federalist Society had a movie. They say it can't be done. It's really good. It's on, on Netflix. You can watch it streaming. And it's about how human ingenuity can solve some of the world's largest problems. Well, they wanted to get that film in front of environmentalists. And as we talk about in terms of who is the most hostile, probably to some of the Federal Society's policies, I would put that group in that bucket. And so instead of the Federal Society being the messenger, we got the film to be opening night in the Colorado Environmental Film Festival. So the messenger now is the film festival that people have been going to for 20 years. So we had 400 folks in a room who actually heard the message of that film. And then after the movie, during the Q&A, they were pretty shocked to realize they absolutely agree with the Federalist Society. And so I think that's a good example of film festivals can be a tool for an entry fee of $40. They can be a great matchmaker for a certain subset of audiences. I've certainly been to the festivals where three people are there. You know, that's not worth it. We want to go to festivals where it's okay if they're hostile, but if they have open hearts and minds based on who the messenger is, you'd be really uh, impressed to see how effective that tool can be to get your message out uh, and jumpstart a conversation to non-traditional folks. So using the festival itself as the messenger kind of going back to your your first point that's an interesting huh i never really thought about it that way you're kind of a credentialing device credentialing it also helps uh us leap out of the echo chamber right so any, I, I know a lot of groups who want to do that but they don't know where to begin film festivals are a great way where if you have top-notch content and believe me they will let you know if you get accepted or not uh it's a great way for it to open doors that, you know, otherwise it would take you a few months to build those relationships. Well, they'll welcome you, give you a platform. So we're trying to co-opt those platforms, again, being very purposeful and intentional for the right audiences. That makes perfect sense. Well, I think what you all are doing at Iron Light, Iron Light Labs, is really great and important. As you mentioned, I've been to one of your conferences. We've been uh, the beneficiary of some of Iron Light's work and and value it and see you guys as important partners, not just for us, but for the broader movement and sharing these ideas and, and challenging our thinking on it. Maybe that's the most important thing. So Joe Jensen, really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Peter. 
Every day, think tanks churn out well-argued, thoughtful publications on any topic imaginable. With these white papers, however, they often struggle to find an audience. Sometimes that's intentional. They might only be written for a few specific lawmakers. But often that information that would be valuable to a broader audience, if only the broader audience bothered to read white papers and footnotes. Uh, Vanessa Mendoza and Troy Sinek thought that there must be a better way to share these facts with the world. Their creation, Kite and Key Media, creates fascinating short videos that are widely shared on social media and do something that so many white papers fail to do, get attention. So, Vanessa, just to level set, what is the elevator pitch version of what you do at Kite and Key? Well, thanks, Peter. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you know, I, I spent 14 years in Think Tank World. My co-founder, Troy Senek, spent you know, many years in and around Think Tank World. So in a lot of ways, this project is a love letter to the research we worked on for all those years. And just like you said, you know, it's, it's also born out of a frustration because there's so much valuable work that's locked up in these 100-page white papers and long books and you know, multi-thousand word articles, and we want them to be accessible to people. So what we do is we go into the research that we are constantly reading and we pull out the 5 or 10% of that paper or book that might be relevant, interesting, or useful to the person walking down the street that doesn't typically attend a think tank event. And so we take that information and we translate it into what we feel is one of the most consumable formats, which is video. And that video gives us an opportunity to not just deliver the information directly into the social media bloodstream, since everybody's on social media all day long, but it gives us a whole other way of explaining the work so that it is understandable without having to have the three PhDs, the author who wrote it, must definitely. And, and you take on a whole diversity of topics, too. I watched your recent video about flying and why flying is just so phenomenally safe nowadays. And we're always told it's safer than driving a car. But, you know, I'm not a nervous flyer at all, but I found it a relief as I was flying across the country last week to know that the lack of airline crashes really is more than just a fluke. There's actually thought behind it. And you take on all these different kinds of topics. So tell us some of the ones that you found that have resonated the most with the audience you're trying to reach. Yeah. So, I mean, one important point is that because the audience we're trying to reach is not always looking for public policy information, we have to give them a big diversity of topics because they want to know a little bit more about a lot of things instead of doing the sort of really deep dive that we tend to do in Think Tank World. So as a result, we cover everything, Peter. <laughs> we really we really do. Um, but in terms of what they gravitate towards the most. I mean, we've been in production and, and releasing the videos for 14 months, so you should ask me again in a year. But right now, it's our science and technology, um, energy issues that seem to attract the biggest audience. They really like understanding how things are powered here in the United States and how we should think about that moving forward, which is enormously gratifying because this is something people should be thinking about. And the fact that they're willing to watch the videos and get excited and share them, it makes us feel like we're doing something really good here. Is there a video or a topic that you hit that surprised you and how much attention it got? Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the ones that shot up to the top was a, a video that was about government complexity and how ineffective complex governments usually are. And while I think for some of us, 
that seems obvious, but for a lot of other people, sitting and spending the seven minutes to understand how government got so complex and what this means for wherever you are on the political spectrum in terms of the services that you may get or may want, um, I was really surprised how much people connected to the video. In fact, it is our second most watched videos of all the 60 plus videos that we've done in the past year. What's the most? Super volcanoes. <laughs> I was just in, um, it, uh, in Yellowstone. I was thinking about your video on super volcanoes. Yeah, I mean, it's really important. We do a lot of the sort of traditional public policy issues that you might imagine, right? So things about healthcare, infrastructure, crime. Um, and those videos do really well, but they do even better when we're sprinkling in things that are curiosities. And the super volcano one is not a threat that we should be worried about literally every moment of every day, but it is something that exists on our earth that we should be caring about. But it is something that people get excited to learn about. And so we sprinkle those in uh, within our list of videos that we produce. So talk to us a little bit more about the audience that you're reaching. I mean, who who are the folks that are that are watching? Well, it's been great. I mean, our view from the very beginning was that Think Tank World creates all this incredibly important and useful information and that every American should have access to it. And to do that, though, you have to think about the consumption habits of a more general population as opposed to the traditional academic center think tank population. And so when you do that, it means that the kind of advertising that you do um, has to be much more broad. And what I mean by that is that we have to pick issues that people care about and allow them to connect to it in a way that's meaningful for them. And so ultimately, now that we're a year in, we can see we've got an audience that has um, as much of our audience has a college degree as doesn't. Um, we generally have about a third of our audience has uh, income under $100,000. We have as many women as we have men, and generally they tend to have the kinds of careers that your family members would have, right? So teachers and police officers and all different types of things, and it's been so exciting to see that they are living a full and robust life, taking care of their family, going to work, thinking about their future, and now spending a few minutes also enhancing their knowledge around the public policy issues that definitely affect them but that they don't always think about reaching out to learn on their own. So it's been really gratifying building this audience. Now, you all are very focused on reporting facts, going back, and you, you include citations and everything. But, you know, now we live in this post-truth, post-fact, no-fact uh, society. So why do you think Kite and Key's message managed to cut through? Well, I mean, I think a big part of it is the fact that we are presenting facts now, we, of course, had have an editorial point of view. There, there's That bias will always be there. And anyone tells you that they're giving you something without bias is selling you something. Um, so we make sure that we tell our audience that all the time. But I think people, the jig is sort of up with a lot of the institutions we used to trust. People now understand that they're advocating for something. And I think that there's a large audience in the United States that doesn't have tolerance for that anymore. They don't want the manipulation. And what we're doing is respecting our audience and saying, we get it. Your life is busy. You want the facts and we're going to give them to you. And we're going to be completely transparent about everything we give you. Every assertion has a citation that accompanies it. You can get it on our videos. You can get it on our website. And I think having that kind of relationship with the audience has been very attractive for them. I think that there's a trust we're able to build because we're not trying to get them to do anything other than take a look at the facts 
um, as we find them. And you have something interesting on your website, the Statement of Integrity, which I looked around. I don't really see something like that on a lot of other media websites. Uh, it goes so far as to say we do not, however, claim to have a monopoly on the truth. So kind of elaborate on that. I mean, you've touched on it, but, but what, do you, what do you mean by that if you're presenting facts? So we want uh, the Kite and Key community to be a place for everyone. And what I mean by that is for everyone to feel comfortable. So for example, if you really, really like our video on severe mental illness and it makes sense for you and you don't like our video on renewable energy, you should still feel like this is a place that you can come and learn. And so by constantly reminding the audience that we are trying to give you the facts as we find them and that you should apply your own value to those facts. And in fact, if you totally disagree with everything that we're doing, come and engage and be part of it. We think and we hope that we're creating a space where there's a better exchange of real knowledge rather than opinion. And so having that statement of integrity is our billboard to the audience telling them, you know, we're going to trust you. We want you to trust us. And this is a place for debate and conversation. And you are welcome, even if you're skeptical about any of the things that we put out into the world, you're welcome here. And we want to hear from you. And we want you to know that this is a place um, that we want you to come back to. I think that invitation to honest debate is something that's sorely lacking, and uh, it's great that you do it. Now, you, you obviously have a website, but is that really the best way for people to find you? Where is the best way to for people if they want to come see some of these videos and engage? You can find uh, Kite and Key videos on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and on our website. And we did this deliberately. The social media space is incredibly important for us because it's where the viewers can watch the video and in one click share. And that's what we want in order to get the information as far you know, into the social media world as possible. But the website is there too with tons of information on top of the videos. And part of the reason we did that is because we want it to be a place where people can continue to learn, but also we want it to be a place where teachers can grab the information, can work with it, um, can use it in the classroom, which is something they can't always do via social media. So the website is a great place for you to go, but please follow us on all the social channels because we put lots of additional information um, and fun things on those channels that you wouldn't want to miss. Awesome. Well, I encourage people to go look at the videos. I can't wait to see what you do next. Vanessa Mendoza with Kite and Key, appreciate you talking to us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If someone says free to choose to you, perhaps your mind drifts to the famed economist Milton Freeman and his television series by the same name recorded back in 1980. Today, Free to Choose Network carries on some of those same storytelling principles, trying to share free market thought with a broad audience using film and television and web videos. I'm happy to have Rob Chatfield, president and CEO of Free to Choose with me today, uh, to look at some of the many ways Free to Choose is spreading that message beyond just the center-right echo chamber. So, Rob, Free to Choose's roots go back to the ultimate free market guy, right, in Milton Freeman. So let's start with him. So how does that legacy inform the way you think about storytelling in the modern era? I, I think you have to first start with uh, Milton Peter and uh, realizing that while he was a Nobel laureate and could speak to the academics, at heart, he was a salesman. And he wanted to persuade people. And I think if you look at how you persuade somebody, uh, you can't be in the echo chamber. You've got to figure out a way to reach people. 
I've always thought one of the nicest things about Milton, and if people have seen videos on the internet of, of Milton taking Q&A for something or doing a speech, uh, he would, if somebody would ask a question to him, he'd often find Milton would try to improve their question before responding back. And I think that's that thing there. You have to sort of be uh, uh, available and wanting to try to reach across and try to reach somebody else. But to persuade them, first they got to like you. And I think that that's one of the things we try to do there is, is can we use the storytelling, can we use that persuasiveness of Milton Friedman and essentially come across as nice people that just have great ideas in terms of how to solve public policy problems today. And, you know, in this episode, we're focused not just on storytelling, but how to tell stories beyond the echo chamber, which you mentioned. You all have found a number of ways to do that. Uh, but let's start with some of the, the the ones that could have the most potential influence, which is in the schools. Yeah. So tell us about mm-hmm. Is It? So isit.org is the education division of Free to Choose Network. And we started it specifically, uh, you know, depending on who's listening to your podcast, of course, they're, they're probably familiar with Milton Friedman and his work with school choice and vouchers and as a proponent of that, which didn't go over very well with public school administrators. And uh, isit.org, it was never a subterfuge. We never planned to say, oh, we're, we're, we're hiding something here like a Trojan horse. It was simply we wanted to start something that served teachers, period. And a lot of times we'll take the uh, public television documentaries, which we do, and we'll carve little components out of that, but we make them specifically for the classroom space, and we try to get stuff and stories that really make sense for the students. So my, uh, uh, my own children are 17 and 21, and the first ones to tell me, Dad, we're not watching your videos unless we have to. And therefore, we send the videos where they're going to have to watch them, somewhere in the, in the public school system. So, And do they get good feedback? I mean, do the teachers enjoy them, or do they have any red flags because of the you know, Milton Freeman name or anything? It, and we never, as I said, so Milton Freeman is not associated with isit.org in the same way that you know people would associate Milton Freeman with Free to Choose. But feedback from teachers is overwhelmingly positive. Because it's not that we're trying to put a a propaganda message into the classroom space. Our philosophy is always going to be there. But if you want to teach a a story, we have a a project coming out next on the Berlin Wall. Life behind the Berlin Wall is actually going to show what it looked like in East Germany versus West Germany. Well, that's of interest to students. They're going to want to see something like that. What were the living conditions like in each of these places? If we were just going to try to do something and say comparative economics, nobody's going to want to watch that. So by making something that's going to be interesting to the students, the teachers enjoy that because, again, as I said, what we're really trying to do is just take, use the storytelling apparatus, if you will, to get that message across. And you don't have to tell students that things were worse in East Germany than West Germany. They're going to find that out pretty quickly for themselves. And the visual medium really helps with that. So mm-hmm. I know you've done long-form documentaries uh, or long-form videos and documentaries and short-form videos and web-based mm-hmm. stuff, the, the whole nine yards. So you've got... Uh, Joe and Nor- Norberg's New and Improved and his Dead Wrong series as kind of short forms, but then other stuff. How do you find that one format's more conducive, more effective than another? It's not such that one is more conducive or effective than another. I think you use all the tools that are available to you. Uh, I've told a lot of people, and I've mentioned my, my children earlier, uh, people think there's a short attention span and that people are only going to watch something for two minutes. Well, my, my kids will binge watch Bob Burgers for the entire weekend on shows they've already seen, by the way. These will be repeat episodes. They'll watch that stuff if they're interested. But you've got about two minutes to hook somebody. 
So if you can't hook somebody in two minutes, they're going to go off after that. So what we've tried to do with the Joe and Norberg things is make them two to three minutes so that whoever's watching, it's going to watch the entire thing. They'll get the message across from that in, in that format. But uh, we made these videos called Free to Choose Under Two Minutes. And we took the original Free to Choose uh, uh, episodes and we really tried to summarize the essence of what Milton was trying to get across in each of the 10 episodes. Because we thought, oh, two minutes, students will watch this stuff. What we found was, no, they wanted to go watch the one-hour videos. Um, so that we thought we were using the two minutes to try to draw them in. But what was really happening is they'd find a one-hour video and then go to the next video, go to the next video. They were happy to binge watch a long time. But I still think, as I said, you use all the tools that are available to you instead of trying to say we're only going to do one or the other. That's an interesting reframing of the short attention span. Because, yeah, I hear that a lot as well. I think that's, you know... Mm -hmm gospel amongst many people that it's just a short attention but but you're saying really the short attention span isn't hooking them not necessarily in their full paying attention yeah they, they as i said if somebody wants to immerse themselves into something because they're interested they will immerse themselves it's that two minutes you have to really capture their attention and are you testing that i mean do you have some kind of way to to get feedback have metrics around that I'm going to give you a long story for this one, Peter, but it goes back to the early PBS days when there was only four stations on. And the three commercial networks would have one minute and then cut to video or cut to commercial. And PBS determined, uh, from my executive producer, Tom Skinner, actually, we're going to go two minutes so that when the commercials are on, if people are flipping the channels, they'll actually get one of our programs. And what he found was using that two minute time frame. That people you could hook people in within that time frame. So either people watched you for the two minutes, or they watched you for one minute, clicked off because you didn't capture their attention in a minute, and he only had one additional minute to capture their attention before they were going to go off to something else. So the uh, the the theory behind this is actually really old. It's about 40, 50 years old in terms of how fast you have to hook somebody. So let's talk about CBS actually. So you had in among your long form works, you recently did a three part series on the Constitution. Uh, produced with in partnership with Judge Doug, Doug Ginsburg. It's great. It's really terrific. Uh, it aired nationally on PBS, which is great, I think. Uh, but I want to know, do people still watch PBS? Uh, is that a forum that actually really helps promote these ideas? It's funny because, yeah, the uh, people still think, well, all right, well, Sesame Street, and that's it. That's about the only audience they have anymore. Uh, people still do watch PBS. When we do the broadcast airings, uh, if we're on a, uh, a, a primetime broadcast, we'll get us somewhere between a million and a million and a half views on PBS itself. So it's way down from what the numbers used to be when there was only you know, your four choices of broadcast. But PBS also is adopting, like everybody else, with regards to streaming platforms. And most PBS viewers now are actually choosing when and where they want to watch the programs, much like everybody else. So you can almost consider them as just another channel, if you will, that people might have in terms of their apps, etc. What PBS does for us, though, Peter, is it really gives that stamp of approval. Uh, it, it makes it people still consider PBS to be, you know, the leader in educational television. So when we do something on there, when we uh, ask a participant, for example, to appear in one of our documentary films, if we tell them it's for public television, their interest level goes up automatically because they want to be seen as being within that type of audience. So there's still, there's an imprimatur that I think helps us still being on PBS and nobody else in the freedom movements there on a regular basis. So we like to keep that foot in the door. Do you have to change the message at all? 
We don't have to change the message, but I will tell you, it's getting much more difficult to navigate the PBS environment. Uh, they uh, literally have to, when we submit now, we have to submit our diversity, equity, and inclusion plan before they're even going to take a look at the film project. Oh, wow. And that's a, it's a vestige of uh, uh, Ken Burns doing lots of series on jazz and things like that, and not including any African-Americans on his staff while he was filming these projects. Uh, so now everybody has to submit that plan even before they're going to consider it. Interesting. Yeah, it's, well, yeah. well, I'm glad you keep persevering and keep moving on mm-hmm. with a lot of these different ways of getting this content out. It's really great. So we, uh, we, are, we are free to choose from among many things that you guys are doing, and it's really great. So thanks, Rob. Peter, thanks so much for having me. To wrap up, let's look a little bit at what it takes to develop talent to help us tell all of these stories I mean, let's face it, the bank of artistic talent on the free market side is generally not presumed to be very deep, but there are efforts out there to find those undiscovered storytellers for liberty. Erin O'Connor is one such storyteller herself, and her story incubator is looking for those diamonds in the rough. And uh, Erin, let's start with what you're best known for, which is as the screenwriter for the powerful film Miss Virginia, which won all kinds of awards and continues to be talked about. It tells the story of Virginia Walden Ford's struggle to expand schooling options for her son and help him avoid falling through the cracks in the education system. It's just a really important screenplay uh, and very moving for extolling the virtues of school choice, which isn't necessarily what people necessarily go to the movies for, but it's an important concept and it really picked up some acclaim. So how did you approach writing it so that the message could be heard by folks who may not necessarily even be open to the idea of school choice? That's a great question. And um, I came at it with an understanding of how divisive the issue of educational opportunity has been in our culture for decades now. Um, This is one of those areas where we have this intractable cage fight going on and people just lob hand grenades at each other and we can't get along. And meanwhile, uh, generations of kids are kind of getting flushed into the sewer um, because we can't resolve this issue. And I did not want this story to get caught up in that cage fight. I wanted to do something that would bounce viewers out of that dynamic. And Virginia herself is that story. Um, I just said, I'm going to zero in on the heart of this, which is the heart of it. It's the fact that this is the story of a mother who will stop at nothing to make sure that her kid gets a good education, which he needs so that he can have a shot at the future. That is not political. That is human. That is the heart, right? Um, Everybody can agree that that is what kids should have. And that's what mothers ought to be able to offer. Any parent should be able to offer. And so that's the story I wanted to tell and just shoved the partisanship um, aside and just went with the core story. Well, people want human stories, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to be able to connect. And um, that, that was very much my endeavor with that. And it was incredibly powerful to see the responses of audiences. Um, BET uh, aired. Miss Virginia in, I think it was February of 2019. And uh, there was a kind of live Twitter feed going on while people watched the film on the BET network. And it was incredible. 
and very, very moving to watch because there's a lot of parents who are watching, people who could connect with um, the world of the story, the plight of Virginia in trying to find a school where she could send her son that wasn't a failing school. People are th writing things in their tweets like, this is me. This is my life. I am living this right now. Tears are rolling down my face as I watch this. And when Uzo Aduba in the character of Miss Virginia stands up for herself and she fights the system, people are cheering. They're like doing the wave on Twitter. It's incredibly powerful to see that. Yeah. And, and now, so you've had great success with that. Now you're helping some of these other folks kind of like you find their voice, whether it's in novels or screenplays or various artistic medium. Tell us about the Story Incubator. Yeah. So the Story Incubator Writing Lab is a project that I founded with Morris Black, who's also a producer on Miss Virginia. We founded it in 2020. And it's a super streamlined program. It's all remote. It's very, very small, super custom. And the, the aim is simply to find very talented working screenwriters and other kinds of storytellers who are uh, creating and crafting, uh, could be feature film, could be television series, could be podcast, could be something else, but a narrative that takes up the question of what freedom is and why it matters in a meaningful way that has real commercial potential to gather those people together into a workshop setting to help them perfect their passion projects and then to provide them with the support that they need afterward um, to, get those to get those projects packaged so that they can go out to market and sell so that Netflix might want to buy it, so that HBO might want to buy it. Uh, we work with their managers, we work with their agents, and do everything that we can to make sure that they both have an incredibly artistically fulfilling experience, but also create that commodity that can go out there in the world and create a tipping point for their career so that they can call their own shots going forward and um, also create a tipping point, uh, hopefully many tipping points, for our cultural conversation about freedom and why it matters. My personal thesis is that the polarization that we're having right now, if you kind of try to distill what's behind a lot of that argumentation, there's a massive intractable disagreement about what that question is. Can't agree on what freedom is, can't agree on how we should get it, how we should ensure it, how we should uh, make sure that everybody has it. Um, and that leads us into these like incredibly stalemated policy arguments that um, are grinding us to a halt as a culture. So I think story can bounce us out of that. And that's the mission of this. I think that's a, that's a great mission. I think you're right. Story has a lot of powerful mm -hmm. things that it can do in terms of shaking people out of, out of what yeah. they see. And, yeah. um, you know, how many, how many folks have gone through the incubator at this point? Oh, let me see. We, it's, it's super small. Um, and the idea is that we want it to be uh, a writing lab where people feel really connected to one another and where everybody can deliver their work a couple of times in the course of the writing lab. So we usually have about five or six people in each lab. We're about we're at about 30 people at this point over the course of three years. And it only takes a couple to have an outsized impact too. So 
Uh, small doesn't necessarily hurt in, in cases like this, as long as it's good and quality. Absolutely. Now, when we spoke, one of the things that really struck me um, about what you're doing is that you're not just helping young talent find its voice, but you're also diving into some of the research mm-hmm. around what makes yeah. a good story and how audience yeah. perceive it. Am I describing that right? And what's the goal with, yeah. with being able to share that? Yeah. Um, this grows out of just all the years that I have spent swimming around in storytelling, uh, studying from one point of view or another, uh, how stories work, how they, how they get inside the fabric of a culture, how they get inside people's minds. And, um, this goes back to, uh, I was an academic before I got into this life and I've always been teaching about story. And one of the things that I'm noticing is that there's a, there's a, a way in which story has become a buzzword in recent years. It's become a very popular category. Everybody agrees now. They didn't used to, but everybody agrees now that if you want to sell your product or market your brand or um, disseminate your idea, you need to do this thing called storytelling. So everybody's all about that right now. It's the buzzword. But how many people can actually tell you what it is? Not a ton of people. How many of those people can tell you, well, how does it actually work? Why is it so galvanizing? Why is it so sticky? Why do we want that so much? It's a strange thing when you think about it, how much time we spend doing this with each other. Um, And as it happens, there is a growing body of science that is uh, arising around this very question. And some of it's chemical science, really looking at the, uh, the neurochemistry of story. And some of it is brain imaging, watching through functional MRI scans what the brain does when it's, quote, on story. And it's coming out with some fascinating information. And our feeling is simply that if you are interested in telling stories that get under people's skin, that really um, compel them, that really uh, draw them and pull them in and and maybe change them, maybe make them open to new ideas, or simply just make them want more of your story, it's useful to understand that science. It doesn't mean that you get a recipe for impact, but it does mean that you can make wiser and more intentional choices about what stories you tell and how you tell them. So Aaron, let's close with this. What do you think donors can do to help organizations that they care about tell better stories? That's a great question. And I I think the key thing is for for donors to understand and have it be sort of part of their criterion for for giving that good storytelling is the road to impact because um, the whole process of philanthropy is is about donors finding organizations that can carry out their vision and mission for the world, right? In a lot of ways, nonprofits are sort of extensions of, of donors' intent. And that, that, that's why they exist, right? Donors can insist that the organizations they support are taking stories seriously. They can insist that they are doing their messaging with storytelling as opposed to here's a list of facts and here's an example of why you're wrong, right? Use storytelling to persuade and to open people. They can insist that um, organizations are also developing a, a powerful story about who they are and what work they're doing. And they can also insist that that story is 
public facing and donor facing at the same time. Donors can insist that organizations get all that nailed down, all that uh, smoothed out and clarified, and they can, they can use their giving even to support it. If they sense that an organization is struggling with that, they can um, help those organizations get story consulting support. There are a lot of people out there that do that. I'm one of them. And it can really turn around um, an, an organization's impact creation and fundraising to be able to do that. Well, Aaron O'Connor, appreciate you joining us and, and really look forward to how the story incubator grows in the future. Thank you so much. When I first conceived of this episode, I honed in rather generically on storytelling. In talking with our guests, though, I realized the real need is to make sure our messages resonate outside of the echo chamber, and not because we want to trick anyone into agreeing with our ideas, but out of a confidence that the ideas of limited government and personal responsibility can resonate as long as they get to be heard. As Joe Jensen of Iron Light Lab said, we need to be intentional on who delivers our messages. And Vanessa Mendoza of Kite and Key pointed out that there's value in the work think tanks produce, but it also has to be communicated in a way that is meaningful for the listener. People can pay attention. Their attention spans aren't as short as we think we are, as Rob Chatfield of Free to Choose pointed out, but we have to give them products of quality so we can grab them fast. I took away a lot from our guests. What was your biggest takeaway? Will you email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org and let me know? I'd love to hear it, or hear whatever feedback you want to offer. As Aaron O'Connor of Story Incubator told us at the end, donors have a critical role to play in helping the nonprofits that they love to tell their stories. We at Donors Trust couldn't agree more. If it isn't already, I'd love to have Donors Trust be helpful to you in telling your donor story. If you think we can be a helpful partner to your giving, please reach out to me. Also, continue to share and to rate the podcast. And again, I'd love to know your thoughts. We'll have a new episode for you in a few weeks. So let's talk more soon. <music>